Welcome to the Yoga Living Project podcast, episode number I don't know. We don't keep track, but I will tell you, I'm excited to be sharing this episode with you. This was from a uh, recent satsang we had, which um, if you're not sure what a satsang is, it's uh, basically just like a group discussion amongst people within the community. So we open it up at... um, the community area at the Austin Bluffs Cambia location for anybody who wants to come and listen and learn and discuss. Um, it kind of starts with a little bit of a Dharma talk. So this one definitely had a topic. And, um, you know, they've gone different ways over the different times. So sometimes it's been definitely more of a group discussion. This one just kind of turned into more of a, uh, a Dharma talk or a lecture. But I think the the concepts were pretty heady, and um, the philosophy behind them were uh, pretty fresh and new to most people. So it wasn't a lack of me trying to get people to talk. I was like, hey, what do you think of that? And people would be like, ah, their jaws kind of open, their eyes dilating. Like, I don't know what to think of that because I've never thought about that ever before. Um, Not saying that you know, I just blow minds for a living or anything, but this is an aspect of yoga that, um, it's, it's, there's some nuance behind it. And, um, it's for even me, I mean, I've been studying yoga for a long time. And when I came across it recently, um, it was really original idea and unique to me. And so I, um, have to give all credit to Gregor Mal, one of our favorite teachers down in Australia for um, originating the idea for me to be able to share this with our community here in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And um, essentially covers the four phases of mind throughout the yoga history. And uh, last week we published another podcast about it and a little blog about it. But this one I think goes into a little bit more detail and is a little bit better. So um, there's some background noise because, you know, it's recorded in the community area, which when we get our new location up and running, hopefully the end of this month, um, you will not have to handle that anymore with these um, live recordings because we will have a dedicated space to do things like satsangs and uh, teacher trainings and things without any uh, cross traffic and background noise. So. Without further ado, um, let's get into it here. This recording here is about 45, 50 minutes now from the time we start it. And um, yeah, please hit us up. We would love to hear what you think about it. You can always comment on the comment section on the Yoga Living Project Facebook page. You can always um, comment on it where we'll share it on the Cambio page as well. And if you ever want to be a contributor, um, maybe you have uh, something you'd like to talk about, you can be interviewed as a podcast guest, or if there's something you'd like to write about, or there's a video you have, you could be a blogger or vlogger. Um, We always love to host guest contributors to um, whatever we're doing here at the Yoga Living Project. So... Um, just remember that this this is our way of reaching out and taking the mission of Cambio, which is accessibility, education, and community, 
and removing the um, the limitations of it needing to be within a studio to be something broader that we can scale it out to um, people anywhere at any time because of this wonderful internet we have. So um, share it with your friends, share it with your parents, share it with your even probably your enemies. Honestly, you probably should share this with your enemies. It'd make you guys less enemies. Um, <laughs> so hope you do enjoy it. We will uh, talk to you next time. Thanks again. So, um, yeah, the first time I was ever aware of a satsang, we were in India and there was a guy named Muji giving a satsang. And um, so in a traditional sense, a satsang is much more like you would go sit and listen to a guy talk and or meditate and he would lead a meditation. Um, but it's usually like with a like a guru kind of guy. And I'm, I'm not I'm definitely not a guru, but uh, that shifting of yoga in the modern age is kind of shifting away from gurus and disciples. So um, the actual um, kind of the new way of thinking around what's going to be leading yoga into the new age is satsangs, like, or sangha as it's called. So like a group of people committed to a spiritual endeavor or developing themselves. So um, anywho, yeah, so I just don't want to make any confusing... Uh, I don't want to confuse you thinking that uh, this is about um, anything other than shared knowledge. So I want to talk a little bit about um, this concept that came up to me recently in the yoga teacher training, the 300-hour teacher training. Um, so we study this text called the Yoga Sutras. Mm. And are you familiar with the Yoga Sutras? Anybody heard of it? Yeah. You have? Okay. So the Yoga Sutras, if you ever try to read them, without like really good commentary or a teacher who understands them well, it can feel very like um, nebulous and vague and confusing. You know, like when people vague book <laughs> and you're like, what do you mean? But you don't, you know, they don't respond. They just want, yeah. So that's kind of what the sutras are. They're a reference manual for teachers. But um, one particular translation of the sutras has this introduction and it's a, version by Gregor Mall, who is a teacher in Australia, Perth, Australia. And um, he talks about the four phases of yogic history and the evolution of the mind over this period. And so there's some concepts I'm going to throw out here at you that are going to probably be a little bit different than what you're used to in terms of, um, well, for starters, the word evolution. What do you think of when you think of the word evolution? What does evolution mean? you change change mm. yes okay and so in the modern age it's just kind of there's not really any like change for the better change for the worse right we kind of equate it with survival of the fittest and being able to adapt and survive right so we change to survive and that is true in a yogic sense but more specifically um, yoga really goes to the connotation of the word and the connotation the actual derivative of evolution means to move away and down and um, the belief in yoga if you're not familiar with it is that um, people have a purity within them 
that we are whole, complete, and perfect just as we are. But it's the way in which we get that truth kind of twisted up. We get tangled up with certain experiences or certain illusions or delusions, and we start to evolute. The mind starts to evolute. It moves down and away from this truth, right? So a lot of the practices, um, the purpose of, yo of yoga practices, whatever they may be, the purpose is to do what's called involution or involute. It means to move back inward and upward. And so you can talk about this like with the chakras, moving in and up, or you can talk about this just in a general spiritual sense. But in this um, little essay that Gregor talks about, he talks about the four different phases of the way in which man has kind of fallen from grace. So we're kind of familiar with this trope in most religions, like the fall from Eden and all these kinds of things, right? And in yoga, um, he demarcates it into four different phases. And so the first phase of the state of mind that a man is in, or man, not as in a man, but a woman is in, um, the era is called naturalism. And the type of mind is suspended. So I'm going to explain this a little bit, okay? So, the, if you are familiar with the Yoga Sutra as well, you'll know that Sutra 1.2 is Yoga Chitta Vritti Narodaha. Okay? Do you remember this? Okay. So, Yoga Chitta Vritti Narodaha, do you know what it means? Do you remember what it means? Translation? It means yoga is the mind of Narodaha. So chitta means mind. Narodaha is a quality of mind. It means suspended. And, and vritti is vritti is the um, passing phases of the mind. Like when you have a train of thought. You know, like say you're walking down the street and you smell a cinnamon bun. You know, that might unlock a whole host of memories and desires and cravings. And all those symptoms, of that external stimulus, are what in yoga we call vrittis. So the sutra says yoga is chitta vritti narodaha. So it means the suspension of the vrittis in the mind. So we are in a state of yoga when our mind is no longer twisting around based on what's happening around us. And that can be immediately what's happening around us or long-term, right? Because sometimes we are still caught up on what Jamie said on work Tuesday. And did she really mean that to be so disrespectful to me? Or was she just trying to walk off or whatever it was, right? So it can be a really kind of high pollutant term, this concept of suspended mind. We've kind of twisted it in modern age thinking about concepts of enlightenment and all the rest of it. But really, suspended mind is a pretty simple thing. It just means you're in that state where you're clear, and you're empty, and you're open, and you're at peace. And that's your natural state. And so the technology at this time was naturalism. People, yogis, sages, the great masters that we study from, um, the texts during this time were called the Vedas. Um, they... Uh, they didn't do a lot of yoga practices like we do now. They would literally just sit down. They wouldn't have to do breathing exercises. They wouldn't have to do guided or visualized meditations. They wouldn't have to do a bunch of asanas. 
they would literally just stop everything and the thing would happen. They would involute. It would go inward and upward to that space in the mind. As my friend calls it the Sky Palace. <laughs> right? You guys have maybe been there? Have you ever been to the Sky Palace? I had never been there. Don't feel bad if you've not been there. I never had experienced a moment where my mind stopped until I was in my 30s. I'm still in my 30s. I'm 39 for another few months. But it wasn't until I was in my early 30s until I really realized that my mind stopped. And there's going to be a distinction between your mind actually stopping versus being concentrated. Sometimes, a lot of times, people get those two confused. They think you're focused that your mind is in its suspended state. It's not so. So let's get to the second one. So two is the technology that they use in this state, and the name of it is the mystical phase. So they would use mysticism. They would use mystical practices. The state of mind, I'm just going to kind of, I don't know if this is going to get worse, but probably will. Um, the state of mind is ekagarachita. So this means, we'll just call it a concentrated mind. Or what's better than that is actually single-pointed focus. And we were, those of you who came to my class tonight, this is one of the things we were trying to focus on um, achieving with the drishti. And there's a lot of different ways you can achieve it. The book, by the way, the, the writings during this time, if you're familiar with the Upanishads, that is the main source of writing. So this does come into play, um, and we'll get to that. But have you, have you ever experienced single-pointed mind? Have you ever heard the term flow of immersion? Like any athletes or musicians? The moment that happens when you're working on things that take a deep focus of concentration, where everything else falls into the background, you kind of tunnel into whatever it is you're doing. And for that time being, you lose track of time. Anybody ever experienced that? You probably experience it sometimes with yoga. However, you need to make sure that you're experiencing single-pointed, concentrated mind versus sedated mind. Sometimes those two can be confused. The mind being sedated by yoga is not the same thing as being hyper-focused and really concentrated. And this is another thing that don't feel bad if you've never experienced it because, you know, the mind is the most profound, complex, beautiful muscle that you have. And if you're not training and programming your mind, these things aren't going to happen to you naturally now. The whole point of him breaking these down into the eras, so we're talking this is like, 5,000 BC, okay? This is around 2,500 BC. Um, the practices used to get people into a single point of mind were mystical practices. So they were still using practices from the Vedas, which were, the Vedas, Veda means truth, and there are these four texts that are voluminous. They were, you know, they're huge. They're huge. They're thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. And essentially what they are are practices on how to do certain sacrifices, certain ceremonies, certain rituals to get certain things. Well, over time, as society started to evolute, moving away and down, people still were practicing things like this, but they didn't quite understand them that well. They didn't really understand what they meant or how to do them appropriately because intention, as we know even with yoga, very important. 
So these Upanishads came out to kind of explain these things. And the Upanishads are known as um, to be kind of divinely inspired, just like the Vedas, from kind of uh, insight. Through people's meditations, these things would pop up and they'd realize, oh, this is what this ritual or ceremony means. And this is how we can explain it to the layperson who's not quite here or here. Okay. You with me still? If you're not, that's okay too. Because it doesn't matter. Because you're not here. We're not, as a general fact in society, the, the average person is nowhere near here and the average person is nowhere near here. So we're evoluting. We're moving away from our natural state. Okay? Third phase is oh, the philosophical state. The era of philosophy. So this is around the turn of BC to AD. Okay? So this is what's known as like the classical era of yoga. The state of mind is generally predominated by one feature, and that's distraction. So the symptom of the average person at this time, the spiritual aspirant, was dealing with what's known as a distracted mind. And the books that come out of this era are the sutras and the Bhagavad Gita. You guys familiar with this? Yeah, okay. So the Bhagavad Gita, the Yoga Sutras come out of this. So now we're starting to talk about things that make a lot more sense to even us now in our society, in our world. Like if I go, if you go back and read the Vedas, Vedas you're going to be very esoteric. You're going to be like, I don't know what they want me to do. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's really confusing. The Upanishads, they make a lot more sense in the Vedas, but yet very abstract and esoteric still. However, these, though yes, they are abstract and esoteric, they have enough teeth to them that we can start to have discourse around them. We can have intellectual discourse around them. We can start to break them down and understand the wisdom within them. And we need that because people at this era are distracted. And the distraction is a symptom of the way the mind is evolving to survive the social pressures, the social conditions of the time, the way things are changing around them. Okay. Any questions before I move on to the next one? It's speeding up. I don't want to lose you altogether. Okay. So four, the last one. This is where we're at right now. Number four. Can I write this low? This is the era of technology. Okay. The mind state of mind that associated with it is the infatuated mind. And this is where we get practices of Tantra. So all the Tantric texts come out of this current area. And this starts around 1200 AD up to the current era. So Tantra actually means technique or technology. That's one of the definitions of it. Um, there are other ones too. Is, um, but essentially, a Tantra is any form of technique, a yogic technique to bring people from here to here, back to their natural state. 
So we have the famous text from Natera, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, Garanda Samhita, Shiva Samhita. You probably heard of the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, but even modern yoga practices like Ashtanga and Sara and Angar, all these are known as essentially Hatha Yoga practices. But Hatha Yoga is a subset of Tantra. So anytime you start employing breath work, anytime you start working, so even here, we're still not doing asana, like the stuff we're doing in there, that's still not happening. Here, yeah, we may be like burning some incense and doing some weird ceremonies in the forest. <laughs> but not until here that we start to get into like what's called jnana yoga, which is what we're doing right now, actually. This is a form of jnana yoga, intellectualizing the yoga, putting words around it, giving it shape, giving it definition and boundary. But what really is called for in the current era of the modern condition of human existence is a yoga that requires us to work our body, work our energetic body with the breath, work our mind with meditation, and to work on deeper, subtler levels with deep relaxation as well. So those are kind of the four legs to the practice of a tantra. But, you know, some of you are probably familiar with that term and you have heard, like, you know, the sex tantra stuff that people do. And that did happen, but it was like a really small degree. So, um, the, the Nirvana Tantra is a text that has a lot of different techniques in it. And like 5% were like these sex techniques where you would withhold yourself from orgasm and then, you know, convert that sexually repressed energy into psychic energy or spiritual energy. So that was a thing. But it kind of got a bad rap for a long time where people were like, oh, those Tantra people, they have sex for 18 hours with their neighbors. All these, you know, no, it, it was all only whether you're using sex, whether you're using pranayama, whether you're using the way you eat, to whether we, way you maybe renounce society and go into the woods, whether way you drink kombucha, the way you pray, all these can be tantras. And the purpose, if you're really doing yoga, is to come back to a natural state, because yoga is a subtractive practice. Yoga strips away all the bullshit. That's the purpose of yoga. So if yoga is complicating your life, if it's adding more to it, you need to check your practice because it's not serving you, number one. Number two, yoga is not a religion. It's a science of the mind. Defined as such because there's a specific cause and effect to the way in which yoga works, and it's supposed to work. So the cause is, do this asana. The effect is, whatever it might be, whatever the asana is, right? And if it's not working for you, then... You need to find a different teacher. And so it's still important to find a proper teacher because if you're supposed to get a specific effect from a specific stimulus, whether it's pranayama, meditation, relaxation, or asana, it's not working for you, you need more guidance. Or you need to clear out your intentions. So with this, it's really interesting because what can happen with Tantra is that you can start to develop powers. Right? Simple powers. Not like superpowers. You can develop superpowers, it's said. But you can start to develop things like, well, the ability to do handstands, or open your hamstrings, hold your breath for a long time, influence and win the affection of other people, even. Right? Because you start to look better, you start to get shinier, you start to take care of yourself, and people notice these things. Right? We recognize in somebody's face a thousand different communicative, you know, little micro-movements of the face that tell us so much about what's happening. 
When people start to change on the inside, they can't hide it on the outside. We're masters of authenticity and searching for authenticity. However, what the danger of this practice is, is, is falling in love, getting infatuated with those side effects, those byproducts that are they're beneficial, but getting caught up in there and not moving on, right? So what I mean by that is, say you have some karma from your past, like when you were 15 or 16 years old or eight years old or something happened to you that really left a scar on you that has made you reactive. You're no longer able to get into a single point of focus. Something happened in your life, an external stimulus happened in your life that you never processed, you never resolved, you never dealt with. It caused you to move into a distracted mind. And then this, as you grew older, that distracted mind very easily fell into the trap of becoming obsessed with wealth, with vanity, with things outside of us to kind of fill the hole and fix everything, right? Well then, all of a sudden, you realize after years of chasing the carrot at the end of the stick, I'm no longer really happy. You start to dig deeper. You start to do a little bit of yoga. And you start to come to a Hatha yoga class, whether it's power or hot or yin or whatever it is. You do these technologies, you do these tantras. They start to make you feel better. And then when you feel better, you lose the plot. You lose the original reason you came here to do the thing. So you have to be careful that as yoga starts to increase your general wellness and health, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, that you don't let that become your plateau. That you keep pushing through your glass ceiling because there will become a time if you're a sincere practitioner that you're going to, again, have to go back and face that thing that you've consciously or unconsciously been avoiding, neglecting, running from, ignoring, unaware of all along. But the tools, the technology, the tantras that have given you the strength, that's what they're really giving you the strength for. Not to make your life more comfortable, but to build you up so that you can face those things, so you can break past this glass ceiling and come back to your natural inner state of peace and serenity. That whatever that external stimulus was, took away from you at a certain point. So there's the talk. There's the spiel. I could go on, but I want to hear from you. Does any of this make sense? It does? Yeah. Cool. Well, we're done here then. I guess. <laughs> No, I mean, I think, you know, what do you think about the idea of evolution as kind of flipping the denotation of the word as a, you know, because usually we think of, oh, I'm evolved. I'm such an evolved being, and that being such a good thing, right? But really turning that on its head and understanding that evolving is moving away from something. Evolving is moving out and down towards reaching as a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. So in yoga, the, the crux of all Eastern philosophies is around attachment, right? So the Buddha said, the Four Noble Truths, there is suffering. Cause of suffering is attachment. There is relief possible for that, right? Well, most people don't realize that attachment has two sides to it. 
Attachment has desire, which is the one we're all probably most familiar with, right? Desire is truly the heart of suffering in terms of this philosophy. Now we're here. We're using this mode of thinking to get one step up. And that's how it has to be, by the way. You can't just start to go and read the Upanishads and start to alleviate an infatuated mind. You have to work through the layers according to, you know, Molly's principle. So, what is the other side of desire? Releasing attachments. Hmm? Releasing attachments. Aversion. Aversion. Um, Sorry, my question was confusing. So, we have this two-headed mustard that is rooted in attachment. And one is, you know, because we get attached to things, but we get attached to this world of the things we like and the things we don't like. The preferential mind is either saying unconsciously or consciously, yum and yuck, right? It starts even when we're a little kid. Like when we're like, you know, we start to even, <laughs> you know, make people feel marginalized and small by like saying, oh, Tommy likes pickles. He's so yucky, right? Like, I don't like pickles, I think they're yucky, but I can totally turn that into, kick Tommy out of here, get him out of here, right? So, we take for granted how powerful desire, craving, and aversion, our, our uh, repulsions, our yuck to life, are actually rooted in attachment. It's really easy to focus on just our desires all the time, right? We start to develop ourselves as yogis, it starts to kind of permeate our life, the things we do on the mat, starts to show us ways in which we're like, well, you know what? Last night I ate a better meal, and then when I practiced yoga today, I actually felt better. And then your body starts to crave the better food, starts to crave better sleep, starts to create higher quality things the more you do practice. It just starts to seep in. It's kind of, you know, like a dye. It just starts to kind of tint everything in your life in a way that you get an appetite for things that actually feed you and nourish you and take care of you. Yes? Have you felt this in your practice yet? Yeah? So, okay, I'm trying to make sense of the whole evolution thing, and I have a thought. Please, share. So, sick of my own voice. The, no, no, one of the, one of the ways that I'm starting to make sense of it is that if we're most of the time forming attachments or clinging to things, yeah. We're constantly experiencing loss because it's not possible to always remain attached to everything. And so every time we lose something, that's kind of like a mirror of death in a sense. Mm. So because that's a difficult thing for us to cope with, we kind of go into that mode of evolution in the sense of being survival of the fittest, of avoiding death. So I don't know if that is... A connection there but that is definitely a connection so and that's in that way I can see how um, we're then we're not involuting we're yeah. not spending the time you know turning inward because we're so busy trying to survive yeah. our like perceived avoidance of death if that makes sense say that yeah say that part again <laughs> about what about uh, the mirror of death <laughs> and the craving and evolution so we're evolving in a way that is kind of like a reaction against our fear of death, right? Yes. Yeah. And that really drives our desire. Because nobody wants to die, right? We're all kind of given this birth right. right? Like you gotta you're gonna die. So we either 
create the things that we think are going to keep us from death, or we can run our whole life or try to avoid those things which bring us closer to death. And this, this drama ultimately leads us out away from ourselves. It keeps us distracted from this deeper truth that, you know, yeah, you're going to die, but you're complete and whole and perfect regardless. And our completeness and our yeah, yeah. I think you know. I mean, I smoked cigarettes for years. I used to do a lot of drugs. Um, I really want a cigarette right now. Yeah. yeah. Even though I just did yoga, which would be really good. I loved smoking after yoga. That was my favorite time to smoke. Is after yoga. Um, yeah, like that. Those things are. You know, I mean, it's it, that's a really interesting psychology. Because even the word orgasm, it's a French word. you know what it means? Little death. Little death, yeah. Yeah, and it's these ways in which we embrace the little letting goes, the little releases. And and the cigarette can be oftentimes a way for us to practice that. And it's not, you know, it's not a sustainable way to practice it, probably. Because you can practice it in a way that doesn't, diminish your ability to enjoy the experience of your life. You can start to enjoy those little deaths in a way that doesn't, that's not rooted in self-destruction. But yeah, oftentimes when we practice these little forms of suicide, you know, these, these like long delayed ways of suicide, whether it's drinking too much or eating too much, or I think that oftentimes it's rooted in frustration our inability to feel like we have any control. So we take a little bit of control of, of the one thing that we can have a say in, which is our life. I don't know. I mean, it's different for everybody. I don't know. Tell me more about what you're thinking. Yeah. Um, well, what you, what you said about sort of like practicing, practicing for death reminds me of like, you know, like philosophy of like you, you intentionally make yourself uncomfortable a little bit so that you can be better prepared for when life throws uncomfortable shit at you that you can't avoid. Um, yes. Which which makes me think that like that behavior is like actually so I see it sort of in two ways. Like either practicing for death, like saying that death can't hurt me because only I can hurt myself. Mm-hmm. Um or like trying to create a persona that is that that deserves death. If we believe that we are good, you know, because death is so sort of stigmatized in our culture that it's sort of like, well, how can I deserve suffering and how can I deserve to like do this cause of suffering until I die? Yeah, you're 
You're saying a lot of big things. Like, yeah. My mind. Sorry. No, it's good. It's really, really good. Um, so there is a lot. So you said like three things that are like big ideas that seem to go together really well, but they're all like, they all have like deep philosophy behind them. So I'm just going to pick one to go with, and then maybe that leads us to the next one. But this concept of um, practicing for death is, you know, it's ironic because um, this is a big piece of yoga. This is a big part of yoga. To die well is um, is a lost art. And I think that a lot of people recognize that that there's something about dying with grace, dying well, that um, that has been lost. Um, you know, yoga ends, it's no, it's no accident that every yoga class ends with Shavasana. It's no accident that yoga is the sister science of Ayurveda. If you've never heard of Ayurveda, just know it's the sister science of yoga, and Ayurveda actually means the study of life. So if Ayurveda, the sister science of yoga, is the study of life, then it's not too big of a stretch to say yoga is the study of death. Now, we don't always just sell it that way because it'd be kind of macabre. To be like, come on down to Cambio. We're going to practice dying. We're going to practice the study of death. But, you know, there's there are two sides to that coin where there's one where it's like about dying well, but to die well also implies to live well. Well, because like, I think the wisdom in it is that to recognize that even though you will die, you still take care of the body and the mind and then, I guess, maybe spirit and then whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's not that I'm going to die, so, oh, well, like, I'm just going to, you know, do whatever I want or just, like, wallow in that existential anguish. <laughs> but um, I just think of when I saw the, the Buddhist monks do the... Um, the mandala and sand at the art center. Of, it was like last. I guess that was last year. Yeah, they're coming back by yeah. the way. Yeah, mm-hmm. but anyway, you know, I mean, they're eventually just going to sweep it all off and just dump it in a river. But they spent, you know, several days like making this thing beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so it's like this idea of like that's where the non-attachment is. That's where that comes in. Is that even though, yeah, like someday you're just going to die, you're still going to, you know. Make something beautiful out of what, what you have. Yeah. So, I don't and know. That's, at least that to me, that's, well, that's, that's what the word. I, I mean, <laughs> a word that's been coming up a lot in my kind of psychosphere that has been meaningful to me is the word embrace. You know, and yeah, I mean, we have to embrace our lives to really to die well. We have to. We can't just build an experience out of a false reality. So whatever it is, whether we're moving into the next step from a place of darkness or lightness, we have to take that step from where we're at. We have to be clear and true about the present state of reality. Um, And I think that's one of the beautiful things about the fact that yoga is called a practice. Because that is so, it's such a simple concept. To just be like, okay, start where you're at, right? But in reality, that is so hard to do because we are such a cumulative effect of so many experiences and our own filter on time, which is not the way you know we perceive time as linear, and it's not. Um, and then we try to like calculate that in a way where it's like, okay, if I were to sit here and say to you, 
be here now, <laughs> right? Like about those simple words, that simple concept, be here now. Why can't anybody do that? We all understand what it means to be here now, but understanding it is not experiencing it. In the very heart of yoga, it, that's why it's not called, you know, Ayurveda. Veda is the study of life. Ayur. It would be Yama Veda. That would be the exact opposite study of death, Yama. It's not named that because it's not a study. The practice is so that you can experience. And so with any of this stuff, you know, whether it's smoking, whether whatever your tantra is to get yourself beyond the infatuated mind, whatever tool you're going to use, have an intention, have a direction with it, and understand that that practice can lead to an experience that ultimately starts to shape the mind. So that's really what we're trying to do with yoga. So like, this is something that's not talked about a lot of times, which is what is the goal of yoga? Well, outlined here, it's to come back to our natural state, right? Well, yes and no. It's that simple, but it's also more complex than that. Very few people will, in their lifetime, become a great master of their mind and their life and become an enlightened being to the extent that we have seen in history. Like, um, you know, I, I don't know anybody. So are there any, like, historically people who claim to have reached that state? Yeah. Lots, yeah. The and the thing about it is, is they always do so through experience, always through an experience, and it's through a mystical experience. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of people in the 20th century who did it. There was a guy named Ramana Maharshi who did it. Um, he was a jnana yogi. He did it by literally just using self inquiry by asking the question, who am I, over and over and over again. Um, and we talked about this in one of my yoga classes recently. This, this is a pretty stupid question, right? Who am I? Well, I'm Austin. Okay. Who are you? So that's the outer surface, right? I'm Austin. Well, who is Austin? Well, he's a male, white, human being in America. Okay. Then what? So once you start to strip all the layers of who you identify yourself as, you start to get into an empty space. But what you, if you stop the investigation there, you're shortchanging yourself because you're not empty. They're just subtler realms that you're expecting to have the same equivalence of the physical realm. So this is all gross matter. All the things that I, I rigidly and strictly identify with myself are all very easily quantifiable and verifiable through an external stimulus. But once you start to get into those questions where you sit with them in time, you become receptive to them, you become open to them in a way with a non-expectant mind, you start to get answers to those questions that can be pretty profound. And that's how that was his tool to reach this state. There was another guy, uh, Sri Aurobindo. He was a guy who... Um, Think this is the guy. He killed somebody and he was on death row and knew he was going to die in like a matter of time. I don't know. I think it was a few months. And he realized the error of his ways and just started um, using a form of meditation. 
called uh, descension. So he was using a chakra meditation and, um, you know, he was one of those people who people claim that he reached a state of perfect peace. We call it enlightenment, but it's, you know, these people who reach this state are weird things happen when you're around people like this because nothing is hidden from them. You're gonna well, I was going to say, actually, I just remembered I, I've talked to somebody who claims to have he was like a, he was formerly a Buddhist monk, so he claims to have at some point experienced this state of existence minus what he called the ego but like all yeah. of the other stuff. Yeah. And so it sounded really interesting. Well, and that's, there's a distinction between somebody who like tastes it like there's moments yeah. where you have the, an experience of yeah. like these involuted conscious states and there's a difference between somebody who you know it's like um, you know you work your mind like a muscle to get there but then it's only strong enough to stay there for a little while and you fall back to your preconditioned reality and then if you keep practicing the next time you get there it's a little easier and you stay a little bit longer you keep doing it, you keep doing it, you keep doing it. And then what happens is you stay in this realm and you realize that it's not just a destiny. It's, there's no, it's not an end to it. So that's one of the things that's really cool about it is that this natural state is going to be different for you than it is for you than it is for you. So all these masters of the 20th century, and there's not many that are alive now that people, like Muji's one that people say is that, the hugging saint Amma is one person they say is enlightened being. I think you could definitely argue that the Dalai Lama might be one. But it all has a different personality based on the person, how they got there, number one, and who they are and what their dharma is in life. Right? So like Ramana Maharshi, what it looked like when he got there was just a lot of sitting around. You know, people would come to his, his ashram on this mountain and they would, you know, ask him questions and he would just like befuddle them with the most simple answers that they would either just be like, okay, this guy's crazy and leave. Or it would like just flip their whole world and they would sit down and not be able to leave for months, you know, and they would just being in his presence, it would shift their whole cellular consciousness. There's another guy named Baba Karoli, Krishna Dasha's teacher, who was one who had a totally different um, experience and style of kind of super consciousness and you know when people go see him they would trick all the way to India to go see him and he would just be like give him prasad then go away mm -hmm. he just didn't want to be around anybody you know because it would just take away from his ability to be there because it takes effort to be there when there's so much in the world everything in the world is designed to pull us away from this state and it's the, the one thing you have the one tool is, is, is the yoga practice Based on your personality, you have to figure out what yoga practice. Like I said, there's thousands of techniques that can start to help you, and you start to build a toolkit around that. The pranayama techniques. Well, there's a lot of pranayama techniques, a lot of meditation techniques. You start to find the ones that work for you, and then they'll work for a season. And then it, your, your life changes, and then you need a different practice in summer. You need a different practice in fall. But then there's bigger cycles to your life. There's the ashramas. There's when you're young, you need more asana because you're just like a puppy, right? You need to be run. When you're middle aged, you need more meditation. When you're older, you need more. Excuse me. Middle aged needs pranayama. 
folder needs meditation, right? Because there's there's also prescribed practices for the different phases of the bigger pictures of your life, but even within the seasons. And then, of course, we all have our own personal proclivities. Some people really love hot yoga, right? Some people love yin. Some people love power. Some people love hatha yoga. The thing you have to be careful for, again, is this concept of spiritual bypass. Is the yoga only sedating you and only making you more comfortable in staying here? It should be strengthening you and edging you and pushing you a little bit into that grow space. You know, there's the comfort, there's growth, and then there's the panic zone right around there. You want to stay in that stretch zone. You don't want to push yourself so far that you just give up the practice and leave it and walk away. You're like, ah, that's too much. That's crazy. That's just making things worse. But at the same time, you don't want that practice to keep you cloistered and ignoring things and avoiding things. And the telltale sign of if a particular practice is working for you is one, one is, is it making you a sweeter person? All yoga practice can be measured by the level of kindness to which you are capable of. If the more you practice, the kinder you become, that is a practice that is serving you well. That is a practice that is bringing you along this path. If that practice is deepening your infatuation with your own vanity, your own wealth, material gains, and that can come in a lot of different ways. That can come in even ways of like intellect, by the way. Be very careful of those kind of things, right? You may not look like this person and you're judging them. You're all, oh, she's got a boob job and all she cares about is gold chains and this and that. But me, I'm better than her because I care about my Prius and my, you know, my vegan agenda. <laughs> right? But we can, but again, the root of that, that's attachment. And so that conversation shifts when we have compassion for the other person. We realize, oh, they're just really concerned about their Corvette and their gold chains because they're, the infatuation is a symptom of their suffering. And when we can see that, we realize, oh, something in my practice must be working. Because instead of comparing myself and judging myself against this person, I actually have compassion towards them. I'm, I'm feeling a sense of kindness towards them, even though what they're doing is, you know, maybe even harmful to themselves. So, what other questions? What other thoughts are you guys having? Has this been helpful at all? Yeah? Okay, we got just a couple minutes. Because I want to end this. I have a feedback form that I want you to fill out at the end. It's just going to take like two minutes. Just tell me what your takeaway is. If there's anything you can do to, that you would have done differently or help me do this kind of thing better. But in the last minutes, what are you... Actually, let's do that. Do you have a takeaway? Think, think to yourself one takeaway from this last hour. Whether it's something simple like effectiveness of practice is measured by sweetness, whatever it is. No takeaway? Okay. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I definitely, as, as, as somebody who Step. Um, so, 
this, this whole like tree of mental stabilization. Cool. Yeah, and we don't want to like throw the baby out with the bathwater. So understand that, that yes, in a big picture, desire leads to attachment, leads to suffering. But desire, when we can, can you know, we can't just cut off the arm of desire. Because we're humans, we're not enlightened. We can't get there yet. So we have to use that de desire in a clever way to climb the ladder, to involute. We can start to channel our natural tendencies of aversion and desire. But once we become in a state of self-awareness with it, and like kind of take mastery of it, we use practices to do that. One question: You go up. I feel like I've been up and down this thing a million times. Yeah. I mean, we do go up and down, yes, right? Yes, yeah, okay. absolutely. Well, you're born here. I mean, that's Socrates, you know, that's the main philosophy is that Greek philosophy is you're born here. And it's the shock of birth that knocks you down the ladder of suffering, right? But yeah, you can have, and you can have singular experiences that bring you right here, right away, right? But we eventually kind of backslide back here once the experience is gone we get some afterglow from it but ultimately it's you know, get flashes you get flashes those two mm -hmm. touch them anyway yeah I mean really it's about letting things in your life become a sacred act for yourself you know so like you can, like I said, single point of focus, you can focus that on things like music. But it's not going to bring you here or sustain this very long if the intention behind that music is for people to think you're cool, right? But if that music is rooted in something sacred like service or something, you know, you play music at church or whatever it might be, there's a higher kind of intention it other than just a selfish desire to play that music then yeah those kinds of things can elevate you okay anything else there's a um there's a comment online i think her name was julia my takeaway was moving past fear and attachment do it <laughs> use it do it well, I hope this was worth your time tonight. I hope you got something out of it. Thank you for joining me. And would you guys mind filling out a little quick feedback form? Yeah? Cool. Hope it wasn't too, like, uh, heady and that, that it made sense. I hope I could... I know sometimes I, like, can, like, make people glaze over and be like, what are you talking about? Sorry if it didn't make a lot of sense, but hopefully you got something. I love talking about this stuff. I'm a nerd. Well, sorry, I'm the one who kind of started talking about death, so I hope that wasn't like such a... No, I'm <laughs> glad you did. Down a bit. Yoga is a, yeah. I know it's constantly about thinking about death, and it's not like necessarily a negative thing at all. I know. Like talking and thinking about death that. shouldn't be a bad thing. <laughs> Like, grief is one thing, you know? Like, death right. causes grief, but death can also be beautiful and a release and very deeply meaningful. 
And I was really thinking more along the lines of just like like losses, like even not necessarily death, but just like constant losses that we experience and how that's so difficult right. depending on our level of attachment. And mm. so we do whatever we can to avoid like the constant, you know, that things don't last forever and, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, and you actually brought up like, <laughs> look at the way we relate to desire, right? So this is, the, the hamster wheel of desire is such a torturous son of a gun because either we're constantly chasing the carrot at the end of the stick and never get it, or we do get it and we realize that now you just have to refocus your goals. Because it doesn't, it don't, yeah, it only satisfies you for a moment. And so desire is just a, like a never ending rabbit hole. Yes, in fact, I just read, are you familiar with Rebecca Solnit? She's written a bunch of books, like essays, and one of the books, in one of the books she wrote um, about the blue of distance, so like each horizon that you see, like say you climb to the top of the mountain, well you got there, and then there's another one beyond that. So it's like no matter where you go, there's always going to be another like horizon or yeah. you know some, another you know place to try to reach, and it never ends. Like you know, so it's That's good. Somebody wrote in a great response to that, which is embrace the squirm. Oh, that is good. My wife said something the other night. She said, they're talking about how um, when we have a lack of data around a specific thing influencing our life, we tend to fill the rest of the story in. And it's a natural thing. Like, humans do that as a way to survive and function in the world. But she reminded me of this great quote an old friend of ours used to say, which was, if you're going to make up a story, make it a good one. Because usually when we fill those gaps in, it's always like, Oh, she must hate me, or I did such a terrible job. It's always, you know, you're going to make up a story, 